Chapter 4 In the history of the world, many religions have been born when a sensitive person became aware of a spiritual presence, invisible but real, a power in the air or in the heart, acting in nature or in man. Some have tried to capture and tame this sense of the sublime, to repeat the experience through rituals and even to impose it on others through wars or laws or other forms of oppressive violence. And so the personal sense of wonder and mystery are lost, and in their place grows up a religious and political system for controlling communities and nations. This is the universal tragedy of religion. In some cases, it was never a true encounter with the living God, but with some other force, dark, devilish and deceptive. In other cases, it may have been a genuine experience of the Creator, afterwards perverted, exploited and abused. In the quest for God, it's possible for any of us to go astray. Security lies in taking our bearings from time to time and checking our position. This can be done in two ways. Firstly, by examining the sweetness of the fruit we bear. And secondly, by comparing our beliefs with those of people we can trust. First of all then, there's a simple question to ask. Is my faith making me a better person or a worse? Am I becoming more patient, more loving, more discerning, more sensitive to the needs of others, more like Jesus Christ? Am I becoming purer in heart and mind, wiser in word and deed? If so, there's good reason to suppose I'm on the right track, that I really am in touch with the true and living God. Then secondly, if we're walking in the truth, we will not walk alone, but in company with all who know the truth, whatever their personality or culture or historical context may be. And naturally, if you claim to be a Christian, you're committed to believing what Jesus Christ himself believed and taught. Basic to his belief was an acceptance of the Bible as a true record of what God has said and done and promised for the future. With the words, it is written, Jesus proved many things by authority of the prophets and the law. He affirmed, scripture cannot be broken. To some who thought differently, he gave this warning. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. After his departure, he expected his disciples' teaching to be equally reliable, for he told them plainly, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So then, if my opinion contradicts Jesus himself, or the consensus of Bible writers, there's good reason to suppose that I am wrong. And if they knew the truth, I'll be wise to learn all I can from them.
This requires careful research. The word God is familiar to us, perhaps too familiar. It's an English word. When Abraham, Moses, and the prophets became aware of a powerful divine presence, they did not call him God. They thought of him as El, or Elah, or more frequently Elohim, for they spoke Hebrew. These are awesome words with a connotation of strength, grandeur, and authority. They were fitting for the Creator of all things. For one with power to provide and protect, and also at times to punish. There's something especially mysterious about the word Elohim. It's a plural, but always used with a singular verb, and nobody knows why. It hints at complexities beyond our comprehension. An intense feeling of awe, uncertainty, and perhaps fear would be inspired by the majestic, enigmatic Elohim. In the course of time, Jewish communities were scattered through many Greek-speaking nations. Here, the local people believed in hundreds of gods, or theoi, many of them selfish, corrupt, and immoral. A single god would be a theos. Jewish settlers adopted this Greek word and began to speak of the Theos, the true and living Theos, the Theos who made all things and then gave special promises to them. When the New Testament was written in Greek, this was the word they used. In Western Europe, people had many myths and legends about gods and goddesses. Germanic races spoke of Woden, Godan, Wad, and God. The translator of the Gothic Bible in the fourth century adopted the local word Guth or Guda, so that people would have some idea of what he was trying to say. And other early translators did the same. The words Theos and God conveyed some idea of deity. But the awesome mystery, grandeur, and authority of the Hebrew Elohim were lost along the way. In English Bibles and churches today, the word God is used as though it were the name of our Creator. But it's not His name. It was the name of a mythical deity lifted out of legend and given to Him. This was simply a translator's choice. But there's also a wonderful fact. He has a name, and we actually know his name, for he's told us what it is. When we love or admire someone, the sound of their name brings pleasure and delight. If their name is mentioned across the room, we strain to hear more. If a street sign bears their name, we point it out. Children have their hero's name printed on their shirt. Teenagers in love write their names on walls and trees. 
If we're seeking God, we'll surely be interested in his name. If our desire is to love him, we'll surely love his name. The Bible writers expected this. David prayed, Be gracious to me as you are with all who love your name. He begged for protection, so that those who love your name may rejoice in you. And the Creator himself offered special help. I will protect him because he knows my name. If that is so, it raises an obvious question. What is his name? Moses expected the Israelites to ask this very thing. In reply, the Almighty declared, I am who I am. And then, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And making it even clearer, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is what all future generations are to call me. The name Yahweh, sometimes written as Jehovah, literally means he is or he exists. But it could equally mean he was or he will be. It's a word that embraces all of space and time, past, present and future, here, there and everywhere. It fixes no boundaries. Any other name would limit him in some way requiring countless additional names to describe all his attributes. But Yahweh simply means he is, he exists. He simply is always, everywhere. In the same way that the mysterious term Elohim evokes his awesome mystery and power, so the unfathomable Yahweh reveals him as unlimited and infinite, existing in realms of space and time far beyond the narrow constraints of our humanity. That's how all the Bible writers thought of him. The Bible, of course, comprises two great collections of writings. First, there's the account of primeval and Jewish history in the Old Testament. And then Christian history in the New Testament. In the Old Testament of the Jews, the name Yahweh appears 6,823 times. And this raises a further question. Why in our own day do we not call our Maker by his proper name? Surely, by ignoring his name, we lose an element of our faith and more easily forget what he is like. Why then, in our churches and schools, do we not call him Yahweh? The reason goes back to early times and to the law of Moses. Every Jewish community was taught you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name.
The consequence of this was that instead of speaking his name with reverence and awe, most people felt safer not mentioning it at all. The rabbis never uttered the name Yahweh, lest their hearers be tempted to repeat it lightly or flippantly, and so incur guilt. He was always known to them as the Lord. Whenever they took up the scroll to read and came to the word Yahweh, they said, The Lord. This Jewish custom is continued in our modern Bibles. Every time you see THE LORD in capital letters, you'll be aware that the Hebrew text originally said Yahweh. With their Jewish heritage and their knowledge of Old Testament scripture, the early Christians would know the awesome wonder and burning purity of Elohim, the infinite and eternal Lord. But later generations, without this spiritual heritage, might all too easily acquire a low and impoverished view of their creator. A theos, or a god, would not normally inspire much awe. The same is true today. People around us seem to enjoy profaning whatever word they have for the one who gave them life and gives them every breath. Such is the strange perversity of human nature. To our generation, the word God seems to have lost all meaning. It does not convey the breathtaking mystery, the penetrating clarity and creative power of the infinite eternal. To communicate something of value to such people, we must surely speak more clearly of the Creator or the Almighty, or indeed the Father, as Jesus did. Yet among ourselves we have knowledge of his name. It's an astonishing privilege. When someone tells us their name, we understand that they wish to be friendly, or to say something important. If Yahweh tells us his name, we should take it as a wonderful gesture of friendship and a definite desire to tell us things we need to know. Aware of this, we value and honour his name. We speak it with reverence and awe. Moses, 3,000 years ago, declared, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. 700 years later, Isaiah urged his people, Give thanks to Yahweh. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And still today we can pray with David. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. An awareness of the presence of Yahweh may come to anyone at any time. I stand where I am, in silence and in wonder. I gaze at the distant mountains or kneel on the forest floor and hold my breath with the beauty of the world around me. Every bird and leaf and every human being has been made with love and care. 
I think of my family and friends and happy times gone by, and my heart is filled with grateful thanks. Then come tears of relief and joy with the assurance that my Maker loves me and cares for me. I see a plan for my life unfolding day by day, and I'm moved again with a sense of expectancy. Aware of the things I dislike about myself, I weep for my own stupidities. Then I recall how Jesus gave himself for me, to wash away the past and bring me peace. In these moments, I'm overwhelmed by the wonder and the joy of the Lord. Is this what people mean by worship? In the Bible, we read of men and women who were moved to worship. The Hebrew verb shaha means to bow down or kneel in reverence and in awe. So Abraham bowed to the ground and worshipped when three heavenly beings appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre. His servant Eliezer bowed his head and worshipped as Yahweh answered his prayer and led him to the family he was looking for. The Israelites in slavery, knowing their cry for help was heard, bowed their heads and worshipped. When Yahweh spoke from a cloud on the mountain, we read that Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Joshua, suddenly aware of a divine presence before him, fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. Such an experience would never be forgotten. All his days, a man would live in the context of that moment. Without a doubt, this is true worship. I suddenly realise I'm in the presence of the eternal Elohim. Something astonishing has happened, or is about to happen. I fall to my knees before him in amazement, gladly yielding to his purpose and his call. It's an unplanned and unexpected moment of encounter. From early times, people also brought offerings to the Lord God as a token of their thanks for his provision. Animal sacrifices were later prescribed by Moses to atone for various defilements. But then we come to a curious fact. The law of Moses contains no command to worship. Although the Israelites in the wilderness were instructed to love Yahweh and serve him, they were never told to worship him. Only after they were settled in the promised land were they required to worship, to kneel before him, and then just once a year as they presented the first fruits of their harvest. Time went by, and the Israelites became familiar with ceremonies of worship performed by neighbouring tribes in magnificent temples devoted to idols and false gods. It was King David who first envisaged the construction of a temple for Yahweh, supplied with ranks of musicians and priests to lead his own people in public worship. But it was the later King Hezekiah who planned the most elaborate form of temple ritual. 
the account tells us. He stationed the Levites in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, harps and lyres. And when the burnt offering began, the song to Yahweh began also. And the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Proclamations were then sent throughout the land, and the people of Israel summoned to attend temple worship in Jerusalem on designated days each year. This was a good thing in some ways, for the temple of Yahweh attracted people away from the temples devoted to idols and false gods. But at the same time, it turned worship into a matter of ceremony and routine. Removed from the open spaces and mountaintops, confined to the inner chambers of a religious building, worship would now consist of elaborate rituals administered by priests with disciplined performances from professional musicians and choirs. Worship had been tamed and domesticated as a public service at a designated time in a sacred place. Yahweh himself expressed little pleasure in it, knowing indeed that such a system lends itself to hypocrisy and complacency distracting his people from matters of far greater importance, such as honesty, justice and other aspects of good behaviour outlined in the law. Moving from the Old Testament to the New, we see the same process repeated. Worship, at first, was a spontaneous response of astonishment and willing submission to an extraordinary revelation of the Lord God. The wise men knelt in fascination and delight to worship the newborn king. A blind man, opening his eyes, saw Jesus and cried out, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. On a stormy sea, as Jesus came to them across the water, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. After his horrible death and his burial, he suddenly stood in their midst, alive and well. The account says they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Finally, the host of heaven gaze appalled as a corrupt world is destroyed. Then we read, everyone fell down and worshipped God. In each case, a sudden and overwhelming awareness of the living God brought a spontaneous response of amazement, awe and compelling faith. With the spiritual heritage passed down from Abraham and Moses, these Eastern Semitic people all knew the meaning of worship. But later generations would not be so fortunate. Christianity was about to expand westward into a dominant Greek culture of competing myths, legends and philosophies. The Greek verb used in the New Testament for worship is proskuneo. It originally meant something like blowing a kiss, and this might be done to any statue or person. It's a far weaker word than the Hebrew shaha 
to kneel or bow down in reverence and in awe. Again we see the shift from Hebrew to Greek, weakening the sense of astonishment and wonder in the spontaneous worship of the infinite and eternal. But what of the Jewish temple ceremonies still functioning at that time? When a woman remarked that Samaritans worshipped in one temple and Jews in another, Jesus did not encourage worship in either place. He replied, The hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. When his disciples admired the great stones of the temple compound, Jesus warned that the massive pillars and decorative arches would all be thrown to the ground. Whenever he entered the temple area himself, his purpose was not to worship, but to teach. The earliest Christians saw things in the same way. If they went to the temple, it was not to attend the priestly services but to gather in the outer courtyard among the teachers and money changers, where they could discuss the good news about Jesus with passers-by. One of them was bold enough to remind the Jews that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He was stoned to death for saying it, but it remains the truth. His chief persecutor later admitted, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Those early believers did not make worship a duty. In fact, they did not meet for worship at all, but simply visited one another in their homes for teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Here there was freedom for each to contribute a hymn or a prayer or an exhortation for the encouragement of all, not as a ministry to God, but to one another. Time passed and those days were forgotten as the churches of Roman and medieval times developed into powerful political institutions. These great religious establishments, Catholic and Orthodox, took their lead not from the early Christians, but from the later Israelites, not from the New Testament, but from the Old, with priests, robes, sanctuary, altar, sacrifices and choirs in magnificent religious buildings. Just as the worship of Israel had become an elaborate public ceremony, so now was the worship of Christendom. Christian worship had become a service, and so it remains in many places today. We have seen how Jesus taught us to worship the Father, not in this temple or in that, but in spirit and in truth, wherever we may be. In the forest or in the garden, I become conscious that he is there. I no longer search for reasons to believe. His presence is all the proof I need. Humbled and expectant, I ask him to guide my thoughts. There's no barrier between us. I tell him my troubles and my concerns. I confess my failures and my fears.
I remember once again how Jesus died to bear my guilt and shame. I am accepted, loved and set apart for a special purpose. I am profoundly thankful. From the depth of my heart I worship him in spirit and in truth. Later I become aware of him involved in the activity of the day. Observing a strange coincidence, I realise he has intervened. In a moment of sudden danger, I find he has kept me safe. Untangling a knotty problem, I see he is answering prayer. After a shameful mistake, I am given another chance. Opening the Bible, I find a verse that speaks to me. Far from home, I meet a fellow believer who becomes a friend. In these moments, I see my Lord at work in my life, and again I'm moved to worship in spirit and in truth. Now at last, my restlessness has gone, for I've come to rest in Him. The discovery that my Heavenly Father loves me has changed my life. From then on, I seek Him in the quiet places, in the quiet moments of the day or in the quiet company of his people, to read and think and be wonderfully refreshed. I find true worship flowing from my heart, moving me to pray or sing in words inspired by his own spirit in me. When he's with me, forgiving me, guiding me, helping me, loving me, I cannot merely repeat someone else's words or pray someone else's prayer or sing someone else's song. I must speak to him myself in spirit and in truth. It's the truth that moves my spirit and inspires me. I hide nothing from him. I mean every word I say. Aware of his presence and his love, I feel profoundly thankful for so many things. My instinct at such a moment is to find something I might offer. It may be a candle, or a prayer, or a bunch of flowers, or some money. But all these are inadequate and do not satisfy the need to give. Part of me, or my possessions, will not do. It must be more than that. So I humbly offer myself to the one I have discovered the one who has discovered me. I give myself to do anything, to go anywhere, to play my part in his mission for the world. I still cannot really know him as he is, the creator of all things, the mysterious Elohim who always is everywhere. Yet in his presence I'm perfectly content His call is not for me to know him, but to love him. Indeed, the Bible says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If I can simply get as far as loving him, that will be enough. If I love him and he knows me, then a relationship of trust is possible between us.